Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks for tuning in. And today we're continuing our analysis of biblical preaching. What makes preaching biblical? Why is preaching suffering unpopularity in our churches? And what is needed of preaching is to have an effect. Well, these are some of the questions we are seeking to answer. A few weeks ago, I aired in episodes one and two of this new season, a sermon I preached last year at a conference that drew both approval and anger from the same audience. God has ordained preaching, which means proclamation, proclaiming the gospel, declaring it to people with an authority that does not come from self, but God. Preaching has many more imperatives than simple teaching or Bible study, and it has much more application than the aforementioned didactic methods. In our last episode, we said that preaching has severely declined in churches because many ministers and churches have lost a proper understanding of man's condition and a wrong analysis of the world's condition. They do not see that the world is dead and buried in sin's tomb. The dead cannot extricate, free themselves from their graves no more than any other inanimate object can deliver itself from its environment. Gold doesn't have the power to free itself from its rock and bring itself to the surface where the light of day shines. Neither does a corpse have the power to rescue itself from the grave. Likewise, the sinner does not have the ability to turn over the proverbial leaf and start living for God, and he or she does not have that power because they do not want to live for God. There is something inerrantly evil with human nature that opposes God as it does pain. In fact, the sinner hates God and considers him to be the worst pain the sinner can experience. So, to expect unbelievers to hear a gospel sermon and it make perfect sense to them so much that they desire more than anything else to give their lives to the control of Jesus Christ is simply ignorance of the sinner's condition. In addition to this, it's the failure to realize that God has ordained means or instruments by which He works in the human heart to convert it and make the sinner a true believer. The primary tool that God has appointed is the preaching of the Word. Now, of course, something happens supernaturally inside the heart and mind of the sinner that converts him. That is the work of the Spirit, but the Spirit uses primarily and mostly the Word of God, if not exclusively. I made this case last week. The New Testament repeatedly asserts the means of preaching. It's indisputable. And yet today, church leaders try to contest this fact. They believe that clever and well-planned stories or Hollywood-like acting have a greater impact on today's audience than simple proclamation. They don't accept that man is hopelessly lost in sin and cannot know God's love without God's supernatural intervention. Instead, it's believed that man has enough capacity for good in him that if he could hear or see in an entertaining way the sharing of Christ, well, he would be saved. Well, let's move to another reason why preaching has declined and is in the doghouse with many evangelicals. 
Now, what I'm about to share is generally true across the board, but it's significantly the case in more non-progressive, non-liberal, conservative, bibliocentric churches. Now, what is a bibliocentric church? Well, it's a church built squarely on the Word of God, driven by the Word, loves the Word. And, and this would include a good many churches that can be described theologically as Reformed churches. Now, you may say to me, well, Michael, if that's what a bibliocentric church is, then preaching should be paramount. It should be a regular occurrence. The problem is not that preaching is not considered paramount or that what the church thinks is preaching is not regularly occurring. The problem is what is considered preaching is not preaching. The reason preaching has declined in these kinds of churches is because of teaching. It's wrongly thought that teaching the Word of God is the same thing as the act of preaching, but that simply is not the case. There are some similarities, but teaching is not preaching. I do not want to be overly critical here since I am thankful to the Lord for the resurgence of interest in biblical doctrine and Reformed theology. However, such interest can lead to a more academic approach to Christianity if you're not careful, and I understand that pull personally, being intellectually inquisitive and a lover of knowledge, but knowledge alone disconnected from the reality or the experience of that knowledge leads to spiritual dullness and parched souls. And in many churches that are correctly oriented to the Scripture, this is the problem. They are much like the church in Ephesus, whose only indictment from the Lord was that they had left their first love. Teaching has replaced preaching, again because preaching has been given a bum rap and abused by slick-tongued orators who played with the emotions of their audience to build their reputation as a preacher. Or by men who did not study and prepare but got up and preached by the letter. They opened their mouths and let her fly. They may have prepared their hearts, but they didn't bother with their minds. Over the years, preaching became known as a collection of stories loosely tied to each other with either a sob story at the end or some other emotion-tugging device. Well, no matter the abuse, there has been a reaction against it, and there ought to be. Serious men who love God's Word have rejected the husks of empty preaching and have returned to the exposition of the biblical text, for which I am thankful. Starved Christians have left the deprivation and found men who will teach the Bible. This is in no way a bad thing. Instead, it's something we applaud wholeheartedly. But Man by nature is an extremist. If a man will not stay in one ditch, he'll run to the opposite ditch, and there he will fall. Thus, preaching has been replaced with teaching, and most everyone thinks it is preaching. Both preaching and teaching are needed to help a church to be balanced and grow in grace. You don't take one and excuse the other. No, we need both. But when one is rejected or mistaken for the other, eventually the church will suffer. And it is. Christians undoubtedly grow in their knowledge of the Bible, but remain shallow in their experience. They can explain their theology, recite their catechisms, 
but still linger in the spiritual lowlands where the shadows linger, and there's always a chill in the air. As I travel from church to church, I see the exact condition repeated. People who know their doctrine, but they're still immature. So many who have been Christians for years still struggle in areas that a young believer suffers. Now, friend, this ought not to be. Their knowledge should be making a difference. But what if their knowledge is not knowledge? What if it's just information? God complained in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Now, that seems to run contrary to an expression I remember hearing as a child, what you don't know won't hurt you. God says that's not true. His people were destroyed because they didn't have knowledge. Therefore, it is rashly concluded that the way to keep a church from being destroyed and to increase its health is by simply teaching the Bible, and that is made the priority. But a vital distinction needs to be made between knowledge and information. You can know something to be true, but not have what we call first-hand knowledge concerning it. First-hand knowledge is knowledge by experience, certain facts, or learned information. Oh, both need to be rehearsed in the lab before saying someone is knowledgeable about the subject. For example, how many of you want to have someone operate on you who has gone through medical school, completed the book work, but not the lab work or residency? In other words, the person has no first-hand knowledge. Not many of us are that trusting. We want someone who's performed surgeries before. I think it would be accurate to say of most of you, if not all of you, you'd prefer not to be a doctor's first surgery, even if they had completed their full training. Most of the time, the word knowledge in the Bible is not just about knowing the information, but experiencing it. It means learning the information and, by faith, experiencing the information's reality. And as a result, the information impacts how you live and relate to God and to others. That is how the Bible defines spiritual knowledge. That's what Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 is actually saying. You need to keep reading verse 6 to discover this fact. God says, quote, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. End of quote. Although Israel forsook the worship of God and became idolatrous, they still had the law of God. They continued to offer the sacrifices prescribed in the law of God. They also celebrated the feast and Sabbaths prescribed in the Mosaic law. It was not that they didn't have the information. It was that they didn't believe it, nor heed it, nor practice it from their hearts. To know the Lord is a biblical phrase that doesn't mean to be informed that Christ is the Lord and even know many facts about him. Instead, it means to be acquainted with him personally, to know him in experience. This is the kind of knowledge we need. Information, oh yes, it's a necessary component to the Christian life and faith, but not experiencing the reality of that information is wholly inadequate. It's not what the Bible means by the words, the knowledge of the Lord. Let me describe 
the biblical gift of teaching, thereby allowing you to see why just education alone is not sufficient. Each gift of the Spirit has a specific goal in the life of the body of Christ. The goal becomes that gift's, shall we say, worldview. The gifted person sees the world through the lenses of their gift. The gift given by the Spirit becomes the tinted glasses through which one observes the world. The gift of teaching aims to educate the church by giving the sense of the meaning of the text analyzed. That is the ultimate objective of teaching. The idea of the sense of the meaning comes from the days of Ezra after the Babylonian captivity. After the wall of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, Nehemiah instructed Ezra to read the law of Moses to the people. Several priests helped Ezra while he read to the people by helping those around them understand what was read. The Bible says so. They read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. This has become the model for preachers today, to simply give the sense of the text to help their congregations understand. So, teachers believe that if they can educate the church on the meaning of Scripture, the church will grow in maturity. There's no doubt biblical education is a necessity to spiritual development. But the mistake made is to think it's the only thing necessary. With his tinted glasses, the teacher feels that if he can help his church understand what the verses of his text are saying, that will be the catalyst that makes the members grow up into maturity and ensure the church's health. This emphasis on education, above all else, has contributed to the demise of preaching in our day. I know that sounds like a very, very hard diagnosis. And I know many people will misunderstand and think I'm opposed to teaching, but that's not the case at all. It's a gross exaggeration of what I'm probably poorly communicating. Essentially, here's what I'm saying. Teaching is not preaching, and that an emphasis on education has led to the de-emphasis of preaching, and the result is Christians suffer. Every good preacher must teach, but his emphasis or aim is altogether different from the teacher. Now, we will elaborate and explain in depth in a future podcast, but let it suffice to say, that the goal of preaching deals more with the heart than only the mind. Oh, yes, let me say it again. The preacher must teach. He must address the, the reason with the meaning of the text and how the text fits within the larger context of the Bible. But his ultimate goal is not just imparting the information. No, his ultimate goal is the persuasion of the will of his hearer that the hearer will act on the text. If a preacher is to preach, he must teach. But a teacher doesn't have to preach. In fact, he's not gifted to do so unless he has the gift of exhortation. He is convinced 
that his task is complete if he can make the verse or verses understandable. He can leave the application to the Holy Spirit, and he will produce the action in the lives of the audience. And sadly, this is the oversimplification that happens every week in churches here and abroad that a man only needs to give the sense of the meaning of the text and the Lord will do the rest. Our churches do not lack the information, but something still seems to be missing. Of course, I'm generally speaking, and if your church is different, well, then praise the Lord, friend. You're the exception that proves the rule. And as a general rule, I find that biblically solid churches are missing the dynamic of the power and the presence of God. That is primarily, but not altogether, the result of an abandonment of preaching. Very much on the same line, contributing to this overemphasis of teaching and a famine of preaching, is another abuse of the good. It is expositional preaching. I think it would be more accurate to call it expositional teaching because in most instances, that's what's happening. And during the last 40 years, there's been a resurgence of expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is classically defined as a sermon that derives its major and minor points from the text. According to this definition, a minister could preach random texts from Sunday to Sunday and be considered an expositional preacher if his major and minor points come from the text. But sadly, the definition has evolved and morphed into preaching Sunday after Sunday from consecutive verses of a passage. And in the last couple of decades, it's come to be known exclusively as preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. It's often called expository preaching. When you hear that 99% of the time, the person means preaching through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. Now, again, I must clarify and say I'm not opposed to preaching through books of the Bible. I've done it many times over the years. I'm currently doing it by means of video. But I am opposed to seminaries, Bible colleges, and their professors teaching that expositional preaching, meaning preaching through the books of the Bible, is the correct and only way of preaching. And all other kinds of sermons are inferior. This is not only an inaccurate statement, but historically it's not true. Through the centuries there have been preachers who preached through books of the Bible, yes. But the bulk of preaching has not taken this approach. And if we dogmatically argue to the ministerial student that this is the only acceptable method of preaching, then we're going to have to say that many of our heroes, well, they never preached. And the first to top the list of the men of God who did not preach is our Lord Jesus. As far as we know, at least not recorded in Scripture, is any instance where he preached through a book of the Bible or even a chapter verse by verse or even for that matter, a paragraph of Scripture. And yet the Bible says of him, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said of himself, as he quoted Isaiah's prophecy about him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Luke chapter 4, 
Verse 18. And as far as we know, the apostles' sermons recorded in the New Testament, well, none of them preached using this very narrow definition of expositional preaching. They mainly preached the resurrection of Christ based on their eyewitness testimony and upon Old Testament prophecies. Who would have the arrogance to say that Peter, John, or Paul did not actually preach but simply gave public addresses? Many of their sermons were very topical and not an exposition of even one verse of Scripture. So the historical New Testament record would not agree with preaching defined as only expositional. Another significant issue with demanding preachers only to preach verse by verse through a passage of Scripture is that it doesn't work with the gifts and abilities of all preachers. Now, no one doubts the preaching capabilities of C.H. Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor of the London Metropolitan Tabernacle in the last half of the 19th century. No human being has more of his work in print than Spurgeon. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. And he commented once that he sometimes had six or seven different thoughts in his mind at the same time while preaching. His church was the first megachurch before such a term had been invented, preaching to over 5,000 congregants every Sunday. He read at least five books a week and could quote from what he read and tell you on what page it was found. Spurgeon was a highly gifted individual. However, he said, that he didn't have the gifts necessary to preach verse by verse through a book. In Spurgeon's lectures to his pastor's college, he spoke about preparing a series of sermons, whether it be topical or expositional. Listen carefully. I dare not attempt such a thing and should signally fail if I were to venture upon it. I dare not announce what I shall preach from tomorrow much less what I shall preach from in six weeks or six months' time. The reason being partly this, that I am conscious of not possessing those peculiar gifts which are necessary to interest an assembly in one subject or set of subjects for any length of time. Brethren of extraordinary research and profound learning can do it, and brethren with none of these and no common sense may pretend to do it, but I cannot. It is questionable whether the great majority of preachers had not far better burn their programs if they would succeed. I have a very lively, or rather a deadly, recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews which made a deep impression on my mind most of the undesirable kind. I wish frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves— for it sadly bored one poor Gentile lad. By the time the seventh or eighth discourse had been delivered, only the very good people could stand it. These, of course, declared that they never heard more valuable expositions, but to those of a more carnal judgment, it appeared that each sermon increased in dullness. Paul, in that epistle, exhorts us to suffer the word of exhortation, and we did so. Are all courses of sermons like this? Perhaps not. And yet I fear the exceptions are few, for it is even said of that wonderful expositor, Joseph Carl, that he commenced his famous lectures upon Job with 800 hearers and closed the book with only eight. Surely, to go through a long epistle, 
must require a great deal of genius in the preacher and demand a world of patience on the part of the hearers. Spurgeon continues, I'm moved by yet deeper consideration in what I have now said. It strikes me that many a truly living, earnest preacher would feel a program to be a fetter. Should the preacher announce for next Lord's Day a topic full of joy requiring liveliness and exaltation of spirit? Well, it's very possible that he may, from various causes, find himself in a sad and burdened state of mind. Nevertheless, he must put the new wine into his old bottle and go up to the wedding feast wearing his sackcloth and ashes. And worst of all, this he may be bound to repeat for a whole month. A man is not a steam engine to run on metals, and it is unwise to fix him in one groove. Very much of the preacher's power will lie in his whole soul being in accord with the subject, and I should be afraid to appoint a subject for a certain date less when the time come, I should not be in the key for it. Besides, it's not easy to see how a man can exhibit dependence upon the guidance of the Spirit of God when he's already prescribed his own route. Perhaps you will say, that is a singular objection for why not rely upon him, the Holy Spirit, for twenty weeks as well as for one. True, but we have never had a promise to warrant such faith. God promises to give us grace according to our days, but he says nothing of endowing us with a reserve fund for the future. End of quote. Spurgeon's point, and mine, is that the Lord gifts not all men the same way. Some are more gifted than others to preach through a book than other men. For those who are not so talented, being told they have to preach in this manner or they're not really preaching is like putting a straitjacket upon them. You fetter, you bind them rather than free the preacher to be led by the Spirit. And what happens in the end is that many who have put the straitjacket on teach rather than preach. This happens more frequently than not. It becomes a running commentary on a paragraph or passage of Scripture, and the brain is informed while the heart is starved. Well, our time is done for today. We'll pick up here where we left off in our next episode. And in that episode, we'll examine what true preaching is and its purpose and why we must today have preachers as well as teachers of the Word of God. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. And if you have any questions, please email them to us at web, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. On behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in, and may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.